a word to the wise. To the wise. To the wise. What are we, Crossland? I don't fucking know. An explicit <laughs> podcast tackling content with adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you are caught up with us. This week, we're through the end of Alloy of Law, a Mistborn novel a Mistborn by Brandon novel. Sanderson. Yeah, 16 through the end. Okay, goodbye. Hey there, this is Cross. And I'm PJ. <laughs> and we are Words of Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers like we tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should be thinking of us as your intoxicating weekly book club. If you've made it this far with us, you know, like you should be there. We're jumping off with some weird energy today. It's an earlier recording than our normal episodes, but we, we had some... We had a lot of fun yesterday, and I think we're still riding that high. We did. We, I mean, if you think about it, we recorded two episodes yesterday, so like that's that's a thing. But yeah, yeah. So as PJ mentioned today, or I mentioned, I don't remember who we, said what. We, we mentioned, as we mentioned in the intro, today is our third episode discussing the Alloy of Law by Brandon Sanderson, and we are going to chat about chapters 16 through the end. This is also kind of serving as our wrap-up episode. Not that there's a whole lot to wrap up necessarily like there's not a whole lot to chat about immediately in a wrap-up so we're going to do kind of a larger one at the end of the next book with overly average ben from youtube to talk about both shadows of self and this book kind of at the same time so yeah we're going to talk about the whole fucking book this is a movie of of yep it's true it's true (laughs) but before we get too far into that pj let's talk about what we're drinking what are you having on this wondrous night so i i got curious i was watching bartending youtube as you and i are both want to do came across a really interesting video from the educated barfly talking about Mm. acid adjusted pineapple juice right and he had garrett richard on to recreate a hawaiian mai tai which traditionally is very fruit forward and like overly sweet in balance. So instead, he created a Mai Tai using pineapple juice with acid added to it to make it act like lime juice. So this is a take on it. It's not the exact ratios because I couldn't remember off the top of my head when I was making it. And then I cross-referenced it. But you can find his recipe on the Educated Barfly's website on their YouTube channel. Like I highly recommend looking up that, that YouTube video because it's very informative and gives a lot more reasoning behind everything than what I'm going to do here. So I'm going to run through what I made mine with. It's pretty similar, but not exactly. I've got two and a, uh, two and a quarter ounces of rum. I used Smith and Cross's Navy strength rum. Half an ounce of triple sec. I used a new triple sec. I think it's called Broco or something like that. Give it a shot. One ounce of acid-adjusted pineapple juice, which you create that by adding citric acid and malic acid to the pineapple juice to bring up the citric content to or the acid content to 6%, like a lime would be. That'll get broken down much more specifically on that video or on that website if you are interested. Quarters of an ounce of orgeau, two dashes of 20% saline solution, And then I add a squeeze of 
the lime juice because you use a spent lime wedge inside of the glass. Just plop it in there, swirl it around so you get the lime oils running about. And then flash blend everything, open pour it into that cup with the lime wedge. And then usually you would serve that with a mint sprig. That's all the way in my backyard, and I didn't want to go get any. So I don't have that at the moment. But it produces this really, really weird, in a good way, pineapple-forward rum cocktail that you think has a lot of lime juice in it, but doesn't because it, it, like, it has that sort of acid bite, but all it tastes of is pineapple. Yum. That sounds yeah. so tasty. You've made it twice now, and I am exceedingly jealous of of the idea. And I clearly need to get some of these acids so that I can actually make some mm. some fun juice variants and varietals. Yeah, you can do the same with orange juice. You can do the same with pretty much any juices. Really, sort of tweak mm. them. So it's kind of cool. You just Back need to add beer. the right amount of acids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Back half beer is. Corporate sellout move from uh, Fair State Brewing Company in collaboration with Cloudburst Brewing, New England IPA. Waves of pineapple, lemon lime, and a hint of pine cone here and there, as it's described. So, haven't opened it yet, but I will be doing that later. If I remember correctly, it's very solid, hazy, a little bit more on the bitter side than what cool. uh, what you typically find, but in a in a positive way yeah awesome i'm you know i i think that that's that's great i'm really excited because of some dietary restrictions i don't have a back half beer for a while i'm not going to because way too much sugar and you know other things so doing a a kind of a a thing that i've done previously in life with like rotating diets through and kind of doing a, a reset cycle for health reasons and as reasons and kind of resetting a lot of muscle groups and Blah, blah, blah. A bunch of boring, fun gut biome stuff that like no one actually needs to hear about. But so I won't be having back half beers on the show for probably two months or so. So I'm sorry, folks, but I'm going to live vicariously through PJs. And I'll always have either a shot of vodka or tequila nearby as a little back half sipper instead. So that's, that's kind of the new game plan. <laughs> the new game plan. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, the other part of that means that I'm kind of limited on the types of cocktails that I can make, which which is also kind of a fun game to be playing with myself. So inside of this, what we're doing today is the first of what I'm sure is going to be many different martini and martini-esque varietals that avoid, you know, any any excess sugar for about two months. So here, what I've done today is a Luna Bloom martini, which is using end of days Luna Bloom, kind of that pea flower, the butterfly pea flower. Pe- pea flower martini butter i don't yeah that what that ends up being is about i did it a little bit differently than you would usually do kind of ratios i evened them out a little bit more because i expected a little bit more of a flavor balance i think it worked great so it's even split one and a quarter ounces of gin and one and a quarter ounces of vodka typically you do like two and then a half or two and then three quarters to kind of get there and then a half ounce of dry vermouth and then i added some grapefruit bitters in there to kind of even out the flavor profile great low calorie cocktail and uh, it's also really tasty so awesome yeah sounds good and pretty it's it's so pretty it is very pretty it looks like riptide rush gatorade in oh, a kind glass. Of. <laughs> yeah 
You're not wrong, <laughs> actually. I did actually put it in a martini glass because I want to ensure that I don't just down this all at once. And I wanted to make it as difficult as possible for myself to uh, to do that since it is just straight alcohol, basically, with, with nothing else. So using the That's martini glass weird. as a way to prevent myself from just drowning right away. Just yeah. Just it. Cool. Right, exactly. Vodka, of course, inside of this is Reikia, which is the reason that I did those ratios the way that I did, because I know what Reikia tastes like and I know what Luna Bloom tastes like. And so it's like, I think I can match up these ratios and make it even and it will work really well for the flavor profile. And I think it I think it was successful. So good. Yeah. So with that, with our drinks out of the way, PJ, before we talk about the chapters, how do you feel about this week's reading? And since we're done, let's just say the book at large. This week's reading was lightning. Like there's, it was so quick. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess that's kind of this book in general. It, it is ultra fast paced. And I mentioned that it's a movie of a book earlier. And I mean that like this is written and paced as if it was a single film. It, it felt very, very snappy and very good to progress through at such a rapid rate it's different very different from what we've been used to in the last several book series that we've been reading but i think in a in a fresh and fun way yeah this this book goes blisteringly fast which is also why it felt right to try to maintain that in the way that we read it as much as possible we could have read this slower and like aligned a little bit more and like kind of pasted so that like i knew it would have only taken us like two hours to cover certain sections versus these episodes on average have been a little bit longer than some of our most recent episodes that we've you know recorded for this book but i think that that's the right way to do it because we get to get through enough content to kind of talk about the whole kind of pie as it's presented to us as we've been going. So mm-hmm. what a pie yeah. it is. What a fantastic gun toting, rough shooting pie it is. It's root scooting. Root scooting. That's exactly, yeah, exactly where I was going. I am so excited to talk about this chapter and what we have to talk about this week. So let's just not mince any words. I've already minced so many words. Let's just get into it. So with that, We'll get into our chapters. We start with chapter 16. So we open this week with a chapter that everyone read last week. And again, I am so sorry. (laughs) I mean, sorry enough that I apologize for it. But with Wayne wobbling and hobbling through a railroad station, acting the part of an old lady, he really submerges himself again like a method actor into the part of Abergane, using her to get as much information as he can on this new rail car from House Tekiel. This unbreakable rail car. I really appreciated the inclusion of this part specifically from Wayne's perspective, because I feel like this is, I I guess I can't speak for other books. Obviously, you know this, but it feels pretty unique in the way that it really shows him owning a persona in the disguises that he chooses and getting into the great details of like, this boy reminds her of her grandson that's been long lost or whatever it is. He, he digs deep in this persona and really envelops it. Let's envelop him, I guess. And that's something very hard to capture on any sort of like visual media. So seeing it described here so well was really, really fun for me. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. I think one of the joys of the way that this perspective is written is it almost feels like a little bit 
I don't I don't love even saying this the way that I am, but it almost feels like a little bit meta, right? Like think about a writer writing a book. When you write a book, you have to inhabit the mind space and you like your character's brain and how they think as you're going through and writing the character, right? So this is writing a character who's living in a different persona, which is kind of like writing a book within the book. So you have to like yeah. take the internal language that you've developed for Wayne and then spin it into how would Wayne think about other people. And that's so cool. I think it's very unique to this story as well. Yeah. It's to use the terminology that you've already put forward. It's writing a character who's actively writing a character on the fly. Mm hmm. Right. Just total improv acting with like good development and good base and like stuff to go off of, especially as he starts to get into the other characters. You know, it's it's just so great to see him hop between persona to persona to persona. And truly, I there isn't. I know that you were you were bringing in this comparison earlier. I can't think of another character immediately that's like Wayne in anything else that I've read in a long time. Yeah. Including this monologue like he gets so good at it. Yes. To your point. Yes. I, I mean, I brought it up first. <laughs> it feels unique to me. Um, but at the same time, it's still like occupying a space that we already had in the previous books and haven't really gotten to see much here, which is that of the Chandra and, and embodying other people, disguising themselves as other people. So, yeah. And that was different. That take, was different. Isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I was saying the same thing as you were going through and saying that like it, it is a completely different take on the same kind of idea of oc- occupying someone else's skin. You know, the the conjurer are doing it from like kind of a literal sense as they wear the bones of someone else. And it's got that spooky, ooky feeling. That's great. But mm-hmm. this has a more sort of immediate there's also that sense of like he can fail which is something that you didn't really feel with the chandra like they were never going to be discovered in different moments for what they were so that gives this like a almost a sense of danger to it too when wayne's pretending to be this old lady abrogain abrogain i was trying to think and you know about wayne in particular We've read a couple of book series of characters that fill similar roles. So like Severo, for instance, without getting too far into it, fills kind of a similar role of sidekick and kind of like that that other energy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, that's true. You know, folks, if you haven't read Red Rising, go read it and go listen to our old episodes covering Red Rising. Come on. What are you doing? Okay. <laughs> Wayne is mostly made by the guards after asking some suspicious questions about the intent and manages to pull a disguise flip inside of his speed bubble, including, of course, a new hat, because we know that Wayne loves a good hat. He does this again after one. How to say this? He's got some, sw- some after, quick turns. Yeah. Well, he's got a couple of quick turns, but after one, you know, expends its usefulness, he switches again to the one that's going to provide him with exactly what he needs next. And it is crazy how great it feels for him to have deceived these people here playing three different roles in like very much in almost a like Scooby Doo going in and out of the side doors and like running away from the ghosts and like losing track of each other kind of a way. It feels it feels great, like almost like a Saturday morning cartoon. Yeah, a little bit. You mentioned that he seemed to get made by the cops, by the constables. Mm-hmm. I'd like, it felt like that right away. It felt like a great recovery after a flub, but upon like further reflection and subsequent reads of it, it feels very intentional how he drops his accent and let the guard catch him 
so we could run away and have him chase. Like it, either way, it's very, very clean. It's either a great recovery and improv, or it's very great technical, like accidental, quote unquote, flubbing. Good point. Yeah, I, I think the reason that my head thinks that it's a little bit more in accidental flubbing, but it totally could be intentional, and I can definitely see it still being spun that way very easily is also in the performance by Michael Kramer because on the page it doesn't really seem like Wayne's flubbed anything immediately the guard just kind of notices but Michael Kramer's performance he fades from Abergain's accent into Wayne's in the middle of the sentence if you listen and it is so smart it, it describes it it says it says dropping his accent briefly but Michael Kramer continues it instead of a brief like maybe a word or two as you would think, briefly dropping an accent would be. Right. He drops it and continues the Wayne accent. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm just saying that I, I think that it is a little bit more. I think I feel like it's a little bit clearer to that point in the audiobook. Like it feels like it is one way. But again, that's that is like an impression from the audio medium, not necessarily and like needing to provide a voice to it more than it is like, which way do you interpret this? I don't I don't know that it's either or, and I don't think there's a definitive answer, but it What's is one interesting or the other. to me in that is that audio um, description of it is what solidified for me that it was intentional. Mm. So exactly the opposite okay. based on the exact same like medium. Interesting. Which, I mean, it, yeah. it's, it's totally up for discussion or up for, up for debate, but it's either way. Very, very clean. Yeah. It's really great. And then the way that he executes the rest of the scene running around him with the the house Tekiel nobleman and then kind of also painting that back in with maneuvering Wayne into the car or into position, excuse me, not maneuvering Wayne, maneuvering wax into the car gradually. It's just great. Yeah, it's great. But, you know. As as I've already started to mention, this is really a ploy. This entire thing is going to be a ploy, which is the part of Marisy and some beggar boys shooting wax and shooting at the group and planting some shells all over the place and Wayne dragging him into the rail car so that he can hide there overnight for the Vanishers inevitable theft. The shooting stops as Wayne heroically declares victory and then the captain repeats it, which I think is funny. Like he like kind of it's like he's kind of shaking it into the captain or something like, no, we're good. And he convinces him and then everyone cheers and Wayne vanishes before he can be asked any questions like it's it's so good i i love that social aspect of it knowing that Mm -hmm. the captain would be the one wanting to take credit for any sort of win so framing it that way as a win and i mean either way the the captain's gonna be on the hook for it so Mm -hmm. he knows he'll be the one to like take credit yeah right oh yeah oh man I do want to mention something before we go into the next couple of chapters. I was going to mention this at the very top of the episode, and I totally forgot. We almost started talking about it before we started recording, but I wanted to mention this. What's also really fun to me about this series, which is a little bit different, is the fact that we know that the end is coming in November. And I also don't have the end. Like, this happened in Dark Age, but we didn't really have a release date. We didn't have an idea of when it was going to end. So... In certain ways, some of the foreshadowing that I'm picking out for you, I am also kind of picking out for myself. (laughs) You might might not be able to distinguish some of that, but like, (laughs) (laughs) you know, that's that's been kind of a fun revelation as I've been going through this this time. Makes sense. 
All right. With that, we go into chapter 17. We move to Wax in the cold, impenetrable rail car of House Tekiel, preparing for the inevitable encounter with the Vanishers and Miles' hundred lives. We move over to the other portion of our crew, hanging out on a little hillside and watching the theft occur. Shots ring out into the night between the Vanishers and the guards protecting the Tekiel car when a giant, rigid leg moves out of the canal and grips the train car, placing it on their barge and replacing it with a replica car. We've finally seen the thievery. We've seen what the Vanishers do. I also get very big, like, Toy Story, the claw energy from this. There's a little bit of that, but also more to me, it's more Lovecraftian in description. mm. And I know that's not necessarily the case, but just the way it's described as I think because it's called a leg as opposed to an arm. That is such a great distinction. It's something that I was thinking of, too, the whole time. Like, how interesting is it that they went to leg before they went to arm? And, like, just just that simple change makes it feel like it is such a foreign, like a crane even is such a foreign concept or like a, a very mechanical crane. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I assume a little bit more mechanized, right? Like, it's clearly got some power and we know that batteries exist right like we we've got a couple of those they describe the light that's being used on the train that was approaching or the car that was approaching to stop mm-hmm. the train you know having a high power battery light so there's there's a couple of different things here that are very interesting but it, i love i love you calling it lovecraftian it is so foreign and strange to them that they really don't know how to describe it which is why especially in the dark we hear leg and not arm calling it a leg two versus an arm gives me the idea that it only folds at the two joints versus like i think of if you were to call it an arm it would have like fingers at the end and you know more grippy like at least three joints more like the claw does in toy story but Mm -hmm. i mean by that argument it feels even more crane like to me yeah fair point most cranes are that way it's vaguely described but horror evoking (laughs) like for whatever yeah. reason, like it, it is ominous, mm-hmm. especially because it comes out of the water. <laughs> right, right. I, I did want to ask the question of you. Oh, fuck. I just I figured out what we we're doing for October short pour. Oh, yeah. All right. OK, I got a crazy idea if, if other things don't happen. Anyway, I just realized that it's like horror month, so we should be doing like a horror book anyway. Cool. So the claw Oh, the, 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 sol- the solving of the mystery here, right? Was this what you anticipated as far as it goes with, like, the way that the Vanishers were doing the train car robbery? Just it was not because I, like, I didn't know what sort of capabilities we were dealing with. And clearly they didn't either. So, like, this is this is a new capability. But there's there's got to be some mechanisms that can carry heavy things. It, like, it is pseudo industrial revolutionary times so Mm -hmm. like cranes probably exist in some form or another in order to like load things onto this train so the idea that it can just unload an entire train car makes sense to me but it is not at all what was on my mind like i truly thought it was getting things out of the same existing train car got it yeah which is kind of what it seems like Yeah, it kind of seems like that as we're approaching this point, right? Like they had because the train car was the same, you know, it's like they just all the goods were gone. And that's why it's so interesting and dramatic that they're the vanishers. And yeah, I I agree with you. I think this makes a lot of sense. And it wasn't something that I had predicted either as far as the 
the whole thing goes. I think that by and large, this was the least, this was the book that I, out of all of the Sanderson that I'd read that I found the least predictable, which is so interesting because so many reviews call it very predictable that I'm like, I don't know how I mean, like it plays into tropes for sure. So like there, there are a number of like tropes and things that you can clearly see being set up, but like different plot points and character, like it's not all tropes. Yeah. I, I guess looking at it at a high level versus like looking at it through a magnifying glass. I can see those mm-hmm. being two very different things. Yeah. Um, because looking at it, looking at it through like the primary beats of the story, I could see how that could be pretty predictable. Not looking at the granular spe- like specs of how was this train heist happening instead of we're going to trick the gang into stealing us mm-hmm. and then we're going to kill the bad guy. Like those main beats are formulaic Mm. but the very specific things are unpredictable in my mind the details that make up the mystery not the actions that are taken yeah yeah that makes sense i love that so the pair head off to chase down the now stolen car and we move over to miles's perspective as he stares over a mission mostly accomplished but miles knows that this isn't over and predicts that wax is inside the train car which is great because as we were saying with the trope you know it's it's this moment of where he's like i know what the fuck he does and he he consistently says that you know in order to think like a lawman you have to think like a criminal which means that miles as a criminal thinks like a lawman so how would he catch himself he would lock himself in the train car so he was taken to wherever he needed to be so there's a lot of like great reflexive logic that's applied inside of these moments that we know and understand but miles is also joined by push and pull the two minders from mr suit as he contemplates how he's going to have to deal with wax we make our way to the iron spine this kind of unfinished industrial building that's crawling towards the sky and they just begin to crack open the door on the car. I love the tension between Miles and the minders. The the collective problem solving of how to deal with this scenario and just the I don't actually need you here, but you have to be here kind of tension relationship. Mm-hmm. Push and pull as names are interesting to me because it is for me, very evocative of Wax and Wayne. Like, they feel synonymous to a certain mm-hmm. degree. But at the same time, very, like, pointedly named for their powers, right? Like, push is a coin shot, pull is a lurcher. Totally. Yeah. But but Wax and Wayne, push and pull, like, it, it feels pointed for some reason. And I'm not sure why yet. But there are parallels that I could stretch and make but i don't feel equipped to actually do that yet (laughs) i Um, think there's like a triple entendre here if that makes it like there's not just a double entendre between like the ideas and names so obviously i think like you said push and pull mirrors wax and wayne in a fantastic way you then think about the fact that like mr suit has two guards that he doesn't want to be recognizable by any sort of name or be able to be traced back to him. So he refers to them as push and pull. So he denames them, which is a very like gangster thug movie, gangster movie thug thing to do. Right. And then on top of that, it's their innate powers. Right. So like on top of that, it's these abilities that they have and how they're also distinctly opposites of each other. I mean, I think it's just, it's, 
it's not like it's genius or anything, but it's neat layering. Like it's it's a neat little nugget in something that is also really fairly innocuous. It's also a really easy way for us to identify when we switch perspectives who we're dealing with without like needing to connect those names because we can in wax's perspective that we'll get to in a minute it's the coin shot versus the lurcher and so like those are the distinguishing factors between the two right yeah where was i oh getting into the problem solving there's one of them throws out the suggestion of just dropping the whole fucking thing in the in the channel which lose the whole train car ironically is the best move that they could have come up with like it's what they should have done. Yeah. I think, isn't Miles the one who says that dropping it in made sense? Or he suggested um, it and then also dismissed it? I can't recall. I know he's the one that dismissed it, but I can't he recall if he's the it. one that also brought it up, which would be funny if he did. Maybe it's in her monologue. It might not be spoken out loud at all. Miles does suggest dropping it in, but then also counteracts himself. Actually, okay. Tarson counteracts him. Sorry. I don't think Suit would like that. And then Miles does say, yes, unfortunately, the canal is a bad idea because then we wouldn't be able to do this thing. We wouldn't be able to get the money ever. So it is like a combination of details, mm-hmm. which I think is nice. It's also cool yeah. as a sidebar. I mean, I know that they've come up before this, but the fact that the canals are still around obviously not in the same because the world's been remade but the idea that canals are still really central to the way that things travel around pretty pretty yeah. neat is that to say that this no they're in they're in ellendale aren't they yeah the city is ellendale not luthadel well they're in ellendale but i was curious if they were actually in or at this point with the with the canals no way of knowing the best context that we we have in terms of like where things are or relationally changed or the reason that we can't say that that's even true or that we can't we don't think that we're in something like her toe is because of the way that all of those underneath all those cities, all of those God vaults that the Lord ruler had built for people to like survive in were all pulled together at the field of awakening that we end at. So like we don't really know where it is, but we can assume that says you know made the canals a thing because that's the geography that he grew up with and knew his whole life so yeah okay what do you build if not the familiar yeah it's god that's still a trippy thing for me to wrestle with in my mind the idea of Mm -hmm. a god crafting not only the world like not only nature but also a city that's something that i don't have any experience with in any other fiction are you familiar with any other fictional like stories that um, include something like that where the the god figure gets that granular in crafting society? There there's a couple of things. I would say that one of the things that makes says it at the very least a little bit of distinction or distinctive from actually physically creating it is he like lays it all out. They still have to build it. You know what I mean? Like they wake up in an empty field. There's no city that's already there for them to like occupy, but okay. Gets yeah. a document from Spook gets a document from Sazed in the words of founding in that book on like how to do it. And then humanity comes together, you know, through doing that. So gotcha. It's not as it is like, that's the rough part. It's like, is it shaped? It's shaped by harmony, but it wasn't like physically made. Like he didn't actually mold the buildings or, you know, anything else. So. Mm -hmm. Okay. That makes sense. That's easier for me to wrestle with, but yeah. At the same time, less cool. (laughs) 
I mean, fair enough, fair enough. In in the extended Lord of the Rings canon, there are gods who, I mean, the Valar, Viar, who build cities or Antmare. One, whichever the bigger gods build cities. So, a- or a root. Yeah, AR, 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 whatever. Rings of Power comes out. Myar would be like Gandalf. Yes, yes, the lesser. Auron is a Myar, yeah. Yep. So, cool. All right, moving on from that little side tangent. There's another little note here that I wanted to cover, speaking of religion and gods, about the Church of the Survivor and Kelsier being referred to as this mythic Lord of the Mists, which is so interesting considering the mists are actually a thing of harmony and therefore of the religion of the path. What do you make of this sort of almost like paradox between the religions? I had an immediate thought on this. And I'm wrong about it, but I'm going to go through my immediate thoughts of it because sure. I think it's kind of fun to think that way because I'm sure I'm not the only one mm-hmm. uh, mistaking Lord of the Mists for the Lord Mistborn. Yep. Although, yeah, those are very similar in term, <laughs> very similar in name. But I thought this immediately threw out my idea that Spook was the Lord of the Mists or the Lord Mistborn. And it kind of fucked with me a little bit. And I, I, my conclusion was that Sazed crafted a mythology to obfuscate the true history, recognizing that a variety in religions was net beneficial for humanity in the end. That was my like justification for this. Like, how do we jump from recent history to making Kelsier once again the central point to a lot of this? Mm. And that's just not the case. This is a different, but confusingly similarly named being between Spook and Kelsier, which I still think it's fairly clear that Spook is the Lord Mistborn, where Kelsier is the Lord of the Mists. God damn it. I'm going to fuck that up every goddamn time, or at least like half the time. It's, you know, I, I don't want to say... Great clarification. I think that's a very easy thing to mistake between the different segments here. But I also don't want us to completely... There's still something to like the overlap of names to some degree. I'm, I do think that they are intentionally these distinct individuals as we've kind of gone through. But they do have like an immediate connection through, I mean, obviously the crew. But then on top of that, the way that I think Spook has been painted to inherit kind of Kelsier's title of the survivor, like we had talked about previously. So it's it's almost fitting and apt that he also overlaps and that we have this weird overlap with Mistborn to Mistborn, you know, or Mists and Mistborn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do want to take the smallest of steps back, though, inside of this question, because I do want to focus a little bit on sort of the the duality of religion here a little bit. There's a, there's a lot of religion that gets kind of, I think, in an actually beneficial way that we can talk about more because it's not all so explicit. We're given a picture of a couple of religions, right? One being sliverism of which we vaguely know is kind of the old religion that was worshiped under the final empire that now, instead of revering the Lord ruler or however it might've changed, it's now old iron eyes. Marsh is also alive. We find out at the end of the story. So that's really interesting. So like their God or their priest in some ways still alive and out there. Didn't get the idea that it worshiped strictly Marsh. Yeah, I'm not, it, it yeah. felt more like Marsh was a figurehead of the religion, but not necessarily the god of the religion. 
I would say more. I would agree with you. I would say like less like figurehead to me means Pope. Like he's there all the time. He's more of like the myth of the religion. But he's also actually there all the time. But he's not actually like (laughs) making commandments. You know what I mean? I do. Yes, he is still there. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, I I agree with you. It's complicated. It's not a one to one Mm -hmm. to any of the religions that I'm familiar with. And they don't reference the Lord Ruler, I think, at all. I don't um, think so. Yeah. So maybe maybe you're right. Maybe they are worshiping Marsh, but it feels separate than that. Like Marsh, Marsh is the avatar of death in some respects. Yeah, definitely. I, I totally agree with you. I was just searching to see if they said Lord Ruler at all. They do not. But it, it does... It, it presents, again, I think, I think this is so fascinating... Because we get these, I said three, we get four. I forgot about, so we've got these like four religions and two of them have real figureheads that are alive, quote, through Sazed and through Old Iron Eyes, you know, and you obviously varying powers there. Old Iron Eyes does not have the same sort of power, of course, that Harmony has and also not at opposition with Harmony. It's just that people worship him, which is interesting or worship like we were saying earlier. They don't worship him necessarily, but they worship around him. They worship this idea of sliverism. We don't have a whole lot on sliverism yet comparatively. So tough to define four because I feel like there's more than that. We've got verism, the path Mm -hmm. or were those the same? So survivor, the church of the survivor the is yeah, Kelsier. The path is harmony. Sliver of the sliver sliverism, sliverism, mm-hmm. trellism. I thought there was one more that was referenced. Maybe those are the four big ones so far. Those yeah. are the four that get the most screen time. What was mares? Larstaism. That might have been mentioned. Maybe larstaism. Yeah. Because that's the Marewill flower, right? Like the the one that the might thing be there. a doodle of a, a doodle yes. of a doodle of a flower, a doodle of a doodle of a flower of a, a real flower that was maybe a doodle. This <laughs> 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 is something something I can't believe we didn't make this joke at the time, but you know, life imitates art, and sometimes art imitates life. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes very literally okay to get back to the core of the point though there's duality in the mists between the religions right like there's Mm. duality between the mists in each of these religions what do you think about that as far as we approach the religions like this idea that obviously we know harmony's the right religion quote kind of like is it right or you know that's that's what's so interesting right i think that's what i appreciate so much about this is that it's not necessarily wrong None of them are necessarily wrong because none of them are necessarily contradicting each other. And they can, they can all coexist without and and taking one thing more more heavily than another doesn't necessarily mean the other thing is wrong. So it's it's more about emphasis than than it is about differences in the actual like religion itself. I'm sure that will become more and more convoluted as time goes on. But I feel like we're still early enough that there's been enough active interaction with Sazed that things will still be fairly like tame as far as that goes. 
Sure. Yeah. The infighting between religions. I mean, it's not it's not as though these religions are really competing with each other. They're just beliefs that people hold, which I think is also another thing. It's not like we're not seeing religious warfare on any stretch right now. They feel more like political ideologies than they do religions at this point. Fair point, actually, because that is kind of way, the way that Asteris presents it right away in the beginning as she's like, oh, you're a Pathian. So that means you think this way. And yeah, there's yeah. there's some of that, which, yeah. Totally. Okay, cool. That satisfactory after I brought us back to it three times. Circling that one. So this chapter Energy, Crossland. Energy. 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 Our chapter ends with an explosion as Wax's predicted trap is thrown at Miles' feet. He knew that this was going to happen. It was just a matter of time. And Miles' hundred lives, same one thing for Miles' hundred lives, but I mean, you can fool him as much as you want. He won't give a shit because he can live forever. Almost. I feel like they're both so much on the same page that they were never going to like, I don't think wax was intending to trick him. I think he was intending for miles to intercept him like this. Like, I, I think they have a very similar thought process and mutual understanding of the law and how criminals operate. And they're like, just going along with it because they know the other one's going along with it. Mm hmm. The vibe yeah. that I got off of it. Yeah, it's it's like the same mind meme or like Spider-Man pointing at each other <laughs> doppelganger meme. Totally like it, and they're like literally like doing the same thing because they just keep making the same moves. And that is also fascinating from a character perspective to be like, I've created two characters of whom have identical skill set sets, but completely different abilities and how they square up against each other. And it turns out that teamwork wins the day. But, you know, we'll, we'll get to that. Teamwork and trickery. <laughs> always, always some trickery in a good Sanderson novel. Cool. Anything else on the transition here? I mean, that's we a violent way to transition. Happened. It is a violent transition <laughs> between pages. The explosion actually basically happens off screen, which is kind of funny. Like the actual physical explosion and rendering of everything. Because as we go into chapter 18, we switch to Wax and he makes his way out into the room and to the base of the iron spine. Bits of like stone and scree are scattered everywhere. The dust hasn't settled yet or anything like that. It's... It's totally just spread out all over the place. So like I said, we're kind of post explosion and there's the the description, I believe, of the lights here. The lights swinging from the power of the explosion above is like, I just I had such a visual moment with I can't remember exactly what he God, it's right at the beginning of the chapter. I'm just going to find it real quick. Okay, most of the lights had been knocked out by the explosion, and those that remained were swinging wildly, painting the room with bewildering shadows. That's such, like, a great description as, like, the light hits at different angles and then moves and, like, just mm -hmm. creates this almost, like, unctuous feel as you, like, get into the room. Unctuous. Unctuous. Yeah. Don't tell me That's how to... Word. Don't ask me how to spell it, because I couldn't, I don't think. No. You know, I... <laughs> I oh there it is okay I know how to spell unctuous now okay <laughs> <laughs> definitely used an X no X folks all right <laughs> U N C T yeah U O U S N E S S unctuous doesn't need the unctuousness you added a ness on the end you spelled unctuousness oh, I, thought, I thought there was a ness no you can just say unctuous did did you say unctuousness I said Maybe I Earlier? did. I could have. Okay. I might have. All right. What is the what is the base word for unctuous? Unctu? Unctuous. It, unctu unctuous is the base word. Th there's got of unct 
If you want like the Latin base, it's unctus, and then the base became unctuous, and then unctuous. Mm. It started as unger, which is even weirder Ungerer. because that's very weird. <laughs> <laughs> And rhymes with underwear. Yeah. Oh, boy. Oh, Oh boy. boy. Fourth grade humor. Let's go. Fourth grade humor. Underwear. But so the the lights swinging above are obviously incredible. And I really love that bewildering description. Wax dispatches a couple of vanishers. But as expected, Miles is nearly unharmed by the explosion. Barely taking damage. His coat is like a little bit in tatters. But he's kind of like come on dude like i knew you knew there's the sort of like almost in the beginning of the combat and approaching this there's almost like a resignation that he knows what's going to happen and he knows there's this sort of predictability here that i love and i just like imagine him kind of just being like shrugging it off like literally like okay you done you done throwing a tantrum (laughs) kid like he does have that vibe to him doesn't he Mm-hmm. Yeah, like he really just rolls with it. And it's a great point to bring up the fact that Miles is not affected. Like he is so very nearly invincible throughout all of this. But I, I still I've got a way I could kill him. I really do. <laughs> and I mean, that's basically big flathead shovel to the point where there's no like skin to contact his neck. For yeah, if you go quick enough. Yeah, I think you Not, said that in the I mean, first episode. Yeah, but I like mean, you have to like metal. fully. Yeah, it's got to be long enough that it can't like regrow around it. Mm-hmm. I think they had described like even dr- he couldn't die from drowning because his lungs would heal themselves so fast. Like the the physical polyps in his lungs would heal as they were like deprived of oxygen, and his body would continue to stitch itself together when it was deprived. That answers the the brain, like oxygen suffocation thing then mm-hmm. yeah because i'm not worried about his lungs i'm worried about his brain right yeah so it almost seems like you know i don't i don't want to maybe even posit this and i could probably look it up someone has probably asked this question inside of the repository of information that is the 17th shard and the copper mind but it does at the very least raise the question for me even if you severed his head as the way that you proposed would he die or would he regrow his body? Not like regrow into the old body. Would he regrow a body? I guess he'd be cut off from the metal mines unless they're he like piercing be. his ear. So I would think the core of the being would be the brain and like he might be able to survive for a while if he's got like earrings and stuff. Does he fully like baby Deadpool it? I don't think he has the ability to regrow things. Oh, no, but Wayne does. He does regrow things. Yeah. Wayne's and, able yeah. to, mm-hmm. but he calls it a major pain in the ass to regrow a pinky. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't think he's got the capability of regrowing an entire body, but I can't necessarily he, speak to that. He does get like holes blown in the side of him. And at the same time that those blows happen, he heals like he, he almost seems to Wolverine like heal. Like I, I'm not. I don't Can Wolverine feel like I'm be pulling like a bit. What happens there? Well, I think that that question has been answered. Do I remember off the top of my I head? I believe no. that question has been answered. Like, I, yeah. I don't know. Never seen it. I totally believe that question's been answered. Yeah. yeah, it's definitely not in the movies. The There are only a couple of ways that Wolverine has ever been killed. There's only one real way that he's ever died. But he's been, you know, 
I guess, spoilers for some random comic books that you're probably never going to read, but not for you, but for everyone else. But like he was sealed in in solid adamantium and like that was one of the few ways to solve him, uh, to stop him was to literally encase him in an unbreakable metal. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. So we're getting into the weeds, but can adamantium be melted? It's a great question. I don't think so. Well, I mean, how do you actually can? Yeah. Yeah. It was poured on him. So I assume it's got a melting point. Yeah. So just bring him to that melting point. That would solve the wait. What bring Wolverine to that melting point? Mm hmm. No, he can still heal, though. Like, but all of his bones become liquid. Well, his bones are adamantium. Exactly. So bring him to the adamantium like melting point. His skin will grow around it, but eventually he's a puddle. (laughs) <laughs> okay the counter argument here we don't it ends up being a wolverine conversation in the middle of talking about miles hundred lives because there is some overlap but part of wolverine's thing obviously is he heals really quickly that includes his bones like you break his bones and they heal they can heal wrong and but they will eventually correct themselves like they eventually fix even if they're broken wrong the that's why the adamantium skeleton is so important because it gives him super rigidity and unbreakable bones so it isn't even a question then so mm-hmm. even if even when they've extracted the adamantium from his bones and broken literally all of him down he still doesn't die deadpool has the exact same genes matter of fact that's the whole fucking joke and like you can sever deadpool's head we've we've actually seen that many yeah. times so he's He's kind of the meme version of the power extension. I'm less interested now in killing him. I want to know if you can make a... Oh, what's his fucking name? Purple guy from McDonald's. Grimace. Can you make a Grimace Wolverine by melting his bones together and allowing his body to like form around it? I don't think so. (laughs) I couldn't... I couldn't strictly tell you. I want a Grimace Wolverine. I really do. Grimace, I just want a blob of adamantium. I'm also now imagining a Grimace Deadpool, which is for some reason more real and horrifying in my head. Like, <laughs> basically, the turd... Grimace is basically the turd emoji. I'm sure someone has said this before. But, like... <laughs> but purple. Yeah, but purple. Like, uh, I... Uh, Barney focus shit. group. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> fuck all right we went off topic <laughs> all right we gotta go back yeah we, we, we gotta go back so all of that said <laughs> i think i think with when it comes to like gold and the healing ability of miles hundred lives i do i do actually seriously as we had mentioned before i do question and I, I'm sure someone has answered it some, obviously, because he's a compounder, he heals differently, faster, better. And assumptively, being a compounder also eventually yields savantism in whatever the metal is. Do you have to burn your metal through your stomach? Great question. I think so. But the ferrochemical health he can still access without ingesting it. Yeah, that's true. So I would assume... Because he can do bracers and whatever else. But I would assume that he would grow a little baby body like Deadpool. But I think he would recover a lot faster. But only with access to whatever he has on his head. Yes. Yeah. Right. So earrings become important. Again. In the series. 
earrings, man. How cool. Okay. Anyway, that was a lot of speculation. It was a lot of fun. So we're just going to move on from that. That may or may not be in the episode for everyone. It's one of the wilder sad tangents we've been on in a while. Okay. Herein, we get just an excellent written, excellently written fight scene. Wax fighting a fellow coin shot who we assume to be push when he's surprised by Tarson and nearly taken out. He just dodges it as it like grazes his nose as like a, a fist grazes his nose with the gun in it. That's the funny part about Tarson. Tarson has a fucking gun. He could have shot him, but instead he tries to punch him with the gun in his hand, which is very Tarzan from our understanding yeah. of Tarzan. Wayne drops in from the ceiling, calls Wax muffin-brained, and then we roll along in the fight with Marisi covering from above. Yeah, this whole fight scene, which takes most of the rest of the book, to be clear, is I have a hard time remembering exactly what happens so quickly because all of it is so well blended together and like it it, there's not sections of it it's just fluid it's a fluid fight scene that lasts for the next three chapters um but like all of those things i remember the muffin brain comment the punching with the gun the mercy having like head cover pew pew taking shots from above i i really i agree with you i really like how this is kind of positioned and structured and how to kind of think about how to tackle various components inside of this chunk of the story it's it's a very different fight scene and action sequence than we've seen before from brandon up until this point like this is kinetic this in a complete in a way that truthfully the original Mistborn series didn't touch, I think. I think that this shows three longer novels worth of refining his methods. I agree with you, but at the same time, I felt like this was also a return to form in the description and like step-by-step in some of the more detailed action scenes that we didn't see since, I mean, basically since Mistborn. Yeah, that's A little bit in, in Hero of Ages, but like, Primarily through uh, through Kelsier's and Vin's fighting in the in the first book, we get a lot of that style that I noticed here because I love it. But you're right; yeah. it is more refined. Oh, much more! Like it's it's much more casual because, and here's here's why: we don't get something to me. This is a small this is a small difference that is very clear that he's grown and refined the style that that you like so much. For instance, this happens, I think, in the next chapter, but when he describes shooting down and then pushing up against it, he doesn't say he aims down to shoot so that he can push against the pellets. It is instead, Wax quickly loads the gun, fires at the ground, and then pushes against it. Like, there's that sequence is more kinetic than describing why he would do something versus doing it and then showing the result of doing it. Mm. If that makes sense. And that's not 100% accurate as far as comparisons go, but that's kind of the the biggest difference that I latch into when comparing Brandon's writing A to B. Yeah. I think I've kind of figured out why I like it so much. It's because it gives me such a full, complete step-by-step motion of like how things are done without breaking any of the like in-universe rules of magic. It gives me complete trust that it's done without any sort of hand wave. Mm-hmm. I think that's why I like it so much. If I really break it down, because what I like about it is the, the Alamantic and specifically the Mistborn capabilities in those fight scenes. 
And I think that's why I, we start to see it more here because we're dealing with a lot more alimantic like operations. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's necessary to explain a lot of these things. Plus, they've something to point out here is like a lot of this hasn't really been. We've seen the blueprints laid throughout the story for Wax to have done these things. He in the very first section that we read, he shoots the shotgun, pushes off the pellet. It's like we know that that could be done, and so it's like he's he's given us all of these tricks basically and he's he showed these tricks one at a time throughout the story without like overly relying on them or overly explaining them like a magic system and then we see like a I almost i keep using all of these other weird metaphors and comparisons this episode and i can't stop it but almost like a uh, tony hawk pro skater uh trick string like it's almost like a trick string mm-hmm. in the way that they all kind of move together yeah so combo yeah totally it's just neat I just like it. Now you've just got a nose grind around the around the baggage claim for forever with the infinite balance cheat, and you'll get all your points. Yeah, you get all the points. Totally. God, yeah. (laughs) Fuck. I just my brain immediately jumped to that metaphor because that's that is how it feels. It feels like in a similar way that it most authors would line up things like plot details or like mystery so that like you you understand when you get to the end of the story you're like oh. I can put all the pieces together to get why we got here. This has that same energy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with you. Cool. So we're, we're already starting to talk to talk about it, of course, but the fight really begins as push and pull pose a serious challenge for wax. And we get this incredible scene of fighting, jumping, pushing bullets that feels like it's from like somewhere between the matrix and wanted between shooting, launching himself in the air, like we said, or taking pot shots at these Alamancers trying to take them down and uh, taking down a ton of vanishers as he like variously like unloads six shots one time and then reloads and then he flips on one switch and he's playing with vindication in a really clever way. The lurcher is dispatched by Marisi with an aluminum bullet, thankfully putting one of these two threats down between push and pull, which is a great moment and a great flex for her who's never really been involved in this kind of combat. Mm-hmm. Uh, is this the same point where vindication is used to take out push? That's a little bit later. I think that's actually that's even technically in the next chapter. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, it. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's good to see Marisi come come in clutch because I don't know how well Wax would have fared without that happening. It was looking a little dicey. Yeah, very. Very dicey. It was there were there were different moments there that I particularly loved. And that's why I love I I love my own metaphor of the Matrix and Wanted comparison, because it does like lend itself this very like heavy gunfiring action vibes like we've we've lived in for most of the story like a Western. And there's so much going on here that actually moves it from like Western into sci-fi fantasy Western like this. This stretches past western tropes and traits and what you'd expect there because of the magic system so it's like natural that it does this but Mm -hmm. yeah it's what it's doing for me right now is thinking about every like age in like in our history and what allomantic set would be most suited for like forward progress in our age like specifically here we've got push and pull we've got lurchers and coin shots are very clearly well suited for the wild west or however we want to call it industrial revolution wild west like that sort of vibe modern day 
I would think you'd get a lot more nefarious and farther reaching characters with emotional allomancy. Philosophical times, you'd get like copper mines and tin eyes. Like it'd be, it'd be cool to really like take every age and see how the like prominent allomantic or ferrochemical set would be best represented i think that's why mistborn does and obviously again we're, we're kind of talking about this because we're at the end of this book but like i think that's why mistborn is so ripe and like rife for Brandon's plants like he is doing almost exactly that like that's what he wants to do he wants to show these different ages and how the magic system how like a world with magic would grow over time which i think is such a, it's not that there aren't any sci-fi fantasy books that like really get into like magic in space. I mean, you don't have to look further than Star Wars, which is arguably the biggest one. Although we we don't ever really see like the foundational stuff. They're almost always spacefaring from the beginning, so that's a little bit different. But the point being, like, you almost never see that kind of a thing. And I totally agree with you. It does make you go like, oh, I love I love that you brought in like ancient philosophers because it'd be pre Lord Ruler, right? Like it would be such a that's mm-hmm. such a good. Such a good dig. Yeah. Hmm. We do know. I mean, this isn't necessarily a spoiler, but like this is the unplanned era, so to speak. And era three is going to be a spy thriller like 1970s esque. And so like that lends itself to like a very different vibe. That will be a different vibe. Yeah. That'll be super cool. (laughs) Mm hmm. Yeah, very interesting though. Like the 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 concept of like going from boom to boom to boom and like really kind of taking in these different as the world builds and changes. You know, it's not to say like big changes can't happen and that like maybe Brandon settles on something else, but as he had planned it, you know, three eras, first era, spy era, space era. So mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, I I love talking about this shit, so I'm so glad that we're finally at a point where we can start to I was I was wanting to talk about this so bad in the first series as well <laughs> like the idea of like the idea of mistborn is so cool like the overall concept of what he's doing with mistborn is incredible very smart very intelligent and very approachable which i think is really great because you could jump in here and like it doesn't really it, it, compared to a lot of like series that you might start in the middle of it doesn't really ruin the previous series you don't know who the lord mistborn is you don't know who the survivor of the mists is you don't know who iron eyes is even if you went That's back and read the trilogy later such a good point such a They're good point all nicknames mm-hmm. is sazed ever mentioned by name other no. than harmony no no i think he's only ever referred to as harmony i'm technically incorrect but it's interesting because it is marsh who mentions him at the end but says says not sazed Hmm. Okay. So, like, that's as close as you get to a solid hint. But I think even if you and read went back and read it, you'd probably be good with this book in particular, at the very least. So, okay. Okay. Moving on. I I just I love I love the theory behind a lot of what we're what we're going through now. Wayne, of course, inside of the scene is also off on his own, playing his little Bendoy alloy shenanigans and fighting with a number of the Vanishers with his dueling canes, of course. But it isn't until. But isn't true that he'll be able to take them on forever. He takes dynamite from Marisi and sprints over to his friend, planning what to do next. They throw the dynamite, and Wayne drops the speed bubble right before it crosses into the red-blue shift. That would have been way too much for Brandon to explain. 
and the dynamite knocks out maining many of the remaining vanishers. And so he throws it and then drops the speed bubble before it crosses the threshold to kind of explain some of those complications that could could arise. We see some of those later as he avoids explaining red red shift and blue shift, the idea that like one point is moving faster than the other and so you'd get some weird wobbling because of timey-wimey stuff, but I mean, that's exactly how it would react here. I mean, red shift and blue shift is a concept when you get close to the speed of light in physics. So things traveling one direction faster than or close, like much like the Doppler effect with sound. Yep. You can, same thing happens with light. So something coming towards you looks more red and then starts looking more blue as it's going away from you. I think hmm. might be opposite. I would assume red, blue. I, I think you're right, but it's been a long time since I've because it would it would move past you at red and then you would see blue, right? Uh, I think which has the, longer wavelength, red, infrared, short wavelength. So it would look yeah, the wavelength looks shorter coming towards you because yep. it's compressing and then, itself, and then mm-hmm. longer as it's going away because it's elongating itself wavelength wise. Yeah, that makes sense. That's why you see that stretching variously in interstellar right along like time curves and that's why like in our theories of black hole and that like stretch is a red blue shift visualization mm-hmm. yeah yeah yep. cool not, to see that implemented accurate, here but, because that's exactly right. what it would be like like that mm-hmm. i love it i love this and it's why things are getting kicked around when they go through barriers and good on you good on you yeah branderson and why like the mists are curling at the edge later and like there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff here. I think that is something that I definitely want to give Brandon credit for. Obviously, you're giving him credit and credo credo here. But like he does, especially now at this point in his career, right around when this book had started, he had gained enough of a fan base and reputation that he really spent a lot of time researching different things and trying to provide better like representation as well and like better representation of different sort of like mental illnesses and conditions that people are born with or develop different to to varying degrees different sexualities over time and his his reverence for science and like the importance of him bringing in physicists and chemists and like trying to really explain as closely as possible without also like trying to get it within a reasonable sphere it's not as though any of this is possible of course but like trying to bring it into something that is adhering to a set of rules restriction yeah but the yeah the rules of his universe right like it's not it's not universally applicable but it does at the very least bring in our understanding of a lot of other science so that it is grounded in as much reality without it also breaking the fun you know like he's grounding it all without like sacrificing i I don't think that there are any fundamental rules of the universe that are broken like the rules of our universe that are broken by his universe he adds rules but they all interact with our rules as opposed to superseding them i'll agree with that for now yeah for now (laughs) I mean, within within kind of spectrum of things, right? Like there's a bunch of magic systems, even if we we think to like Elantrians, right? Like they they do adhere to physics generally, like Elantris and and whatnot. But like how grounded is the Aeon door, you know, 
magic and system. How tied like, is it to the center of the planet that they're on as far as reference planes go? Location. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like there's well, it, it is tied to like a where they are located, which is also fascinating. Like the, anyway, point being, there are a lot of like <laughs> grounding rules to everything. And I think that you you do it justice to say that he's more tacking on additional rules than he is rewriting fundamental rules. I think that that is a, it, in terms it's not of necessarily like a, a hard and fast, like yeah. concrete absolute. Those are, those are opposite. It's not so much an absolute statement, mm-hmm. but it, it is, it seems to be a general sort of philosophy that he's following. And in, in terms of like a, a politifact true false meter, my brain goes, mostly true like that is almost completely true it's mostly true but that's Mm -hmm. the nature of like storytelling it's not as though i'm saying that he's breaking fundamental rules at any point but there are obvious base differences in his reality versus shit we'll get to it eventually i i don't need to say more than that and you don't know more than that so as soon as we get fucking bananas flying through the air i'm happy (laughs) (laughs) all right so we are left with our near final con- confrontation between that of Wax and Miles. Wax manages to push him back into the cart where he drops off or where he drops the nets, excuse me, on him from earlier, ensnaring him so that he could be managed better. And so they could kind of take him away inside of the nets. Miles, of course, is another trick up his sleeve, kind of literally, where he pulls out a stick of dynamite from his cigar cage and blows himself out of the cage like an absolute crazy person is fully want to do here. He emerging from the flame begins a bit of a villain monologue that echoes a familiar conversation and maybe even conversations about godlyhood and godliness that we've heard in the past from various characters. Uh, So I want to read that little, little bit here and we're just going to read the dialogue. So is there any doubt that I have been chosen for something great? Why else would I have this power, Waxilium? Why else would we be what we are? And yet we let others rule. Let them make a mess of our world while we do nothing but chase petty criminals. I am tired of doing what the city tells me. I should be helping people, not fighting meaningless fights as prescribed by the corrupt and the uncaring. Can't you see? Can't you see what important work we are doing? Can't you see what we're meant to be doing? Perhaps even ruling? It's almost like... Like we, with the powers that we have, are divine. After he finishes that monologue, he punches Wax in the gut and manages to, Wax manages to get out of the way after taking, you know, quite a beating here and push against a piece of machinery to hide behind some boxes and collapses for a brief moment. What a great little monologue. My one complaint, I guess, is there's not more action backing up his philosophy. You know, like he, mm-hmm. he, he speaks very nobly and in a way that I can totally get behind, but we don't get a lot of action from his perspective of things that he's actually doing to help people <laughs> like he's talking about. Yeah. And yeah. Right. You can now prove he's... me wrong if you, if you want, but it, it feels a lot of like all bark, no bite sort of. I wouldn't go so far as to say no bark, all bark, no bite. I do think it is. He is currently acquiring resources so that he can then go bite and like currently he is a tool he's an extension and so 
there is a lot of barking without him having actually done the biting. And I definitely understand that. And I can see that parallel. But I think that he does so fervently believe this. And I do believe that on a long enough time frame, if Miles weren't stopped, he would have turned against the set and turned them into enemy number one very quickly. Like there are a lot of a lot of characters and villains that are like they become tools and they're always like, well, one day I'm going to I'm going to fight against him and I'm going to I'm going to get him. And I, you almost never believe them. It's like, no, you are forever. You are consumed by your own. Oh, my God. Not entropy. The opposite. When you're rolling down a hill. Inertia. Yeah. You're consumed by your own inertia. Right. So he they're just going to continue on the path because that is the easiest thing to do. But. Miles actively feels like he's fighting those paths as much as possible and like he would turn on the set easily. I I can agree with that. I think that yeah. this story would be so much more complicated morally if this was like the second big thing that Miles has done and we saw a net positive out of a legally ambiguous first thing, a smaller one. But we got to see like his intentions in a very like concrete way into this bigger set that he's currently in. I think that would have made for a much more complex character that we could have actually struggled to, but actually gotten behind Yeah, because I really like this character, but there's just not enough to like grip to in the like proof that he's being a good person yet. Right. Right. If that makes sense. Or that his intentions are for like a good end mean, right? Like he's not prove his intentions. He's not really an Adrian fight. Like Adrian fight has like a couple of bullet points that he hits to like show that he has the best of intentions, but is doing something awful to get there. Right. Mm -hmm. He never stretches to that sort of grandiosity beginning of right. This is yeah. Nipping him is cutting off. (laughs) Yeah. This is cutting off Vite before he becomes wealthy. Yeah. We had that whole conversation about like the rules of the world being upheld. (laughs) Mm-hmm. And then we talk about dynamite causing fires. I so, <laughs> I said that it it's not actually said in the text, and I realized I that it when was. I, no, I it's not. No, it's not. I just visualized flames when I saw it. There's okay. no flames. For some reason, I visualized flames too. So I did too, which just means that Michael Bay has infected our. And brains. it got me. It got me mad that there were flames. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and apparently I'm wrong about that. <laughs> no, I mean, some other things might be on fire later, but I don't think it's ever because of the dynamite. It's always it's always smoke scree stone like it's always the cloud. It's never the. OK, maybe yeah. that's maybe that's what it's it force. I, yeah. Again, this is written so blisteringly that it's also hard to remember because you're just like and the next page and the next page and then like I need to go fast. I need to go fast. Mm-hmm. Channeling your inner Sonic. I am nothing but like a pile of of other media metaphors today and i can't help myself sorry folks at home hopefully you've seen the media that i'm referencing so far we have let me think deadpool wolverine grimace sonic (laughs) sonic wanted mage watchman there's at least one more who oh he flew out it looked really good but i saw him escape to your left anyway point being i so many references all of, oh red rising i guess you could also say the very beginning so so many re- oh, lord of the rings there's your 10 <laughs> i made 10 <laughs> yeah okay anyway i just i'm sure you can tell i am overjoyed to be reading these books because this 
is so good. It's me. really good. <laughs> I love it. So we go back to Wayne fighting a bunch of vanishers himself again, dancing that bend alloy dance of time, which really makes for such a fun concept inside of combat. We've said it before. I'll say it again. I'll say it forever. But he sees the vanishers wearing his the vanisher, excuse me, wearing his lucky hat. Tarson, of course, he comes to realize that his friend has been hurt and ditches them, making his way over to his friend, dodging bullets and noticing the coin shot is holding Marisi's weapon and does what he thinks Wax would want him to do to go help the girl to go help Marisi. It's just nice to see this moment of his like internal ethical and moral clock and like doing what he knows his friend would want him to do. It just showed like Wax or Wayne, excuse me, a lot of the time is this interesting combination of like selfish and selfless. And this is when that selflessness that it feels like Wax has instilled in him since his days of of crime and killing that family like comes through. And it's like, fuck, I have to do the right thing, even if it's in a stupid, silly little bit of like, do I get my hat or do I save the girl? Like, it's important to save the girl. We haven't talked about my like lack of propensity to trust characters in a while. Um, True. This immediately upon hearing that one of the bad guys had Marisi's weapon, I'm like, fuck, she turned on him. Like, mm. She was a plant the whole time. That's what I thought my first time reading through this right at this point. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. And I thought that for a long time <laughs> until basically the real reveal that like she's hiding from him, like until the climax of the fight, I'm like, ah, uh, fuck she, <laughs> Or wherever it is. I like, mean, she, there's she a does point where kill we get pole, you know, that's before this. Yeah. Yeah. But like, but at the very least, I'm saying that I feel miles like isn't necessarily on the exact same page as the suit and, and the set. Fair. Like, okay. I, I, I was able to justify it for myself and this felt, it felt like a very good <laughs> turn. I'm glad it's not the case, but it also in a, in a small way, and we haven't talked about the moment, you know, where uh like Marisi seems to be captured like we would we assumed at this point from wayne's perspective that Marisi was captured or like taken as you know wayne obviously runs for him or her excuse me and i think that it is so subversive for brandon to have it's so subversive it's a little bit subversive to have put in this idea that like she knew that she was made and so she dropped the gun and like ran away and that obviously that like lack of information and communication between these two characters would create this like small gap where there would be some like serious decisions that are made incorrectly. Like this is not all going according to plan. Mm -hmm. It plays against like some, you know, some tropey tropes. True. I would think the other assumption would be that she's dead. Yeah. Right. And like, yeah, go find her, but I'd rather go help my friend that I know for sure is still alive and needs help as opposed to going and seeing if I'm finding a body or a person hiding. Yeah. But Wayne knows to go help her first, regardless, like even if she's like injured or something, it's like go to her. So yeah, yeah, I understand exactly where you're coming from, but I, I get you. I get you. I get you like little first glance skepticism. It makes sense to me. Mm hmm. 
But we move from Wayne back to Wax, and he's injured as the mist begin to pour in through a hole in the ceiling that was made earlier when Wayne and Mary, for like Wayne and Mary, he awakens to a little voice returning to him, and it's a familiar voice, the voice of a god. Sazed or Harmony is here now with Wax and lending him aid in the form of a familiar box. What do you think of our godly boy's real return to the story in this? thought conversation monologue and like physical manifestation of like bringing wax's shit to him here what'd you think wild very wild and what i appreciated was it was void of and i can't do that because of rules set against me it was more of a i won't do that because of rules i've imposed on myself which feels very says it like it, it feels true to the True to the character that we've come to know and can extrapolate upon into a godly figure, I can totally believe that this is the same character that we've grown up with through the first trilogy. Yeah, can I can I append a little thing to that? I think on top of what you're saying, I think it also shows that like Harmony and Marsh makes a little bit of mention of this later, doesn't try to put his fingers on the scale that often. Like he tries very hard to not break his own internal rule set. And therefore, like, outbalance one thing or the other because he naturally is the god of two opposing forces combined into one. And so he tries his best to, you know, represent harmony in maybe the long scale, maybe the short scale. But, you know. Yeah. And I mean, that kind of brings it into the divinity point in Miles's monologue. There is a balance that has to take place. And there are powers that clearly exist in the world. And if Sazed is the embodiment of harmony, it's in his best interest and it's his job, I would I would go so far as to say, to make sure that the good and bad that wield those powers are balanced. So in in a sense, if I'm if I'm following that thread correctly, I can totally get behind the argument that they have a a bit of divinity within them in that they were chosen sort of to wield the power that they have or they've been molded mm. in a way. But then again, I don't know how much is actually changed. Like we know that Sazed when wielding the power of preservation was able to change things within the world, including that of humanity and including that of like basically everything could that also extend to how allomantic and ferrochemical powers are disseminated? Like, it's probably still genetically, but it's still not necessarily every time. It's a, it's a chance, but it, could it be a chance influenced by Sazen? Yeah, a fair point. That, uh, you, are, you are asking great questions that I think get to some of the fundamental things that are very interesting about the cosmology of the Cosmere and as such, the gods that inhabit it, right? Like the idea, the things that you're talking about are some of the most fascinating things about this. It's hard to separate. It's not hard to separate. There are, there's so many good questions that this poses that it makes you like sit for a second, and start to chew over divinity in a very different and also kind of like rules driven way, like what drives the divine truly here? Because there seems to be some other essence. Maybe there seem like there's something fundamentally there. And 
I can't give you an answer yet, and I can't really talk about it, but it is one of my favorite things to contemplate. So if you ever have a thought in context, you need to bring it up because it is one of the most interesting things to talk about inside of the series. And while I won't immediately point to it all the time, you know, it's super cool. Yeah, it's super cool. An ungodly boy like, oh, he's earned his own title. I I did want to mention that the actual conversation that happens between uh harmony and wax is great because it's like this is really weird and and harmony's like yeah it kind of is like (laughs) i liked the michael kramer performance on this because it's it's it says its voice it it feels so warm almost like return to that Mm -hmm. like a hug i felt that i felt that absolutely Mm mm-hmm I totally agree. Okay, to wrap up this chapter, we may have thought that Maricita be easily captured, as we said earlier, but we find her smartly evading the coin shot, who was likely coming for her by abandoning her metal rifle, and she's really fairly kind of lost in all of this. There's there's very much like a, a first trauma experience of a soldier being in combat for the first time. It's all very new to her, despite her doing so well up until this point. She's captured by Miles and Pull, and Miles wants her to scream for him, scream for Wax. But Waxilium Ladrian shows up, fully locked and loaded, and blasts Miles in the side with two shotguns in, like, an epic moment to end a chapter. Like, how do you not pick up the book at this point and just finish it until the end? Like, you cannot set it down at this point. I would have expected you to end here. (laughs) If we were to break this up into six episodes, you would have ended here. I mean, fair. (laughs) You would have. Like, I know you. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Or I would have ended on the dynamite going off. Like, that would have been the other one. You know, and then this would be your final episode. But, yeah. Total. Yeah. What Guns are blazing. Mm -hmm. Kind of. It's the hero jumping in. Like, this is, it's tropey. It's absolutely, like tropey and stereotypical in a way but not in a way that i want to complain about like it just feels yeah. awesome mm-hmm. it, i it's, yeah knight in shining armor to a to a certain degree as well but but with guns <laughs> <laughs> right there there is this degree of like he shows up kicks ass and takes names Save the group, save the world, get the girl. Interesting, <laughs> especially with the way that this ends. But I mean, kind no, of. I, yeah, I understand but, exactly I, what you're going yeah. for. Yeah. 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 It is. It does like hit those moments and has that energy about the entire about the entire situation and interaction. But I just love this idea of like him walking up fully like two shotguns on the shoulders and then like both of his hands just decked out with another two revolvers, his starians at his side. And he's just like ready to go. Like just there's something almost again, Neo from the matrixy in the elevator sequence, like very much like I'm untouchable. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's great. It's really cool. All right. We move into chapter 19. Oh, I was going to talk about my idea for more weapons or more, more ammunition for Alamancers that we could create. Imagine like a deer shot, like a, like a shotgun slug mm-hmm. that has, that's made of ceramic with a, like a metal, a metal core that you fire and then push upon to create birdshot. shot. 
but in a controlled way where you can wait until it hits a certain point and then explode it out. Like, yeah. There's a lot of cool stuff that you could do with like manipulating ceramic bullets with metal like inserts. That's a great point where you could like you can and this is already kind of happening in the way that we see Renette's constructions being used, that's, you know, in, that's in, in various ways. But there are so many other cool ideas. I love that idea because you could it's basically like a timed to some degree very it reminds me of a flat cannon, right? Because flat cannons basically do that where you, you do the initial launch of the mortar and then after a certain distance or time, it's time. But after a certain time, then you get the flak explosion on extra right. to like take out aircraft. So but it'd it's be kind variable. of the same thing, but manual. And only like it it, it makes Alamancers still have an upper hand in a world with guns. Mm -hmm. That's what I think is so interesting here, too, is that guns do level the playing field in a way, but they don't fully like they they it's it's tough because it feels like in the story part of part of the idea that I feel in the story is that like Alamancers are less and less powerful for a couple of reasons. Distance from the bloodlines over time, the reduction of total powers that people have, and, and some of the different things that kind of influence the way that Alamancy and powers exist inside of the story. And the improvement of technology to match or to begin to approach the level of power of the magic. Like that is, we're just seeing that encroachment start now. So there's a question of like, when does Alamancy become something that's almost secondary to the story? Like, and that, and I don't think it will okay. because, because I think no matter what, however technology evolves, Alamancy seems so ingrained into the world that there's mm -hmm. always going to be an upper hand in basically anything. I would have expected technology, technology to advance, to oppose and exclude Alamancy. So I would have expected in a world like this, we'd be dealing with like hand crossbows. I think that's aluminum bullets, right? Like that's kind of the idea of the aluminum bullets, aluminum gun, especially because aluminum is a metal that is so prevalent that right, like, but it's so expensive and prohibitively expensive to the point where like technological advancements would have gone by like the least common denominator. And I think it would sure. have gone hand crossbow first. If I were to, if I were to like estimate the progression of the world, I would have gone less, like less metal as a result of metal existing and being manipulated by Alamancers. Mm -hmm. And as, as we kind of see, like almost no one wears anything. I mean, you and I don't wear things daily that are metal, you know, that Belts. much metal at the very least, right? Like a belt. Yeah. But, you know, for the most part, no one's really wearing that much metal so like that's not manipulated against them my but my boots yeah I, what i what i meant like right now aluminum is rare but very clearly who's to say that it will be rare forever who's to say that like mining operations is like other technology develops aluminum is it was super uncommon in the final empire it is much more common now and it is only going to become potentially more common in the long run so with that fun conversation about metals out of the way, we move into and kind of the bullets and technology. There's so much fun shit to dig our teeth into here. That's why, again, like I think that it'll be even better. I know that I'm kind of breaking up my own routine of talking about the chapter title. But that's why I'm also very excited for the wrap up of the next book with Over the Average Ben, because then we can talk about kind of the whole thing and it'll be kind of a nice approach to kind of 
take in everything with the mm-hmm. with the books. So also he's a Brit. We've got like we're get we're gradually acquiring guests from every <laughs> corner of the world. <laughs> every corner of the world. <laughs> yes. Every English speaking corner of the world so far. But yeah. Yeah. I'm excited for that. That'll be fun. It's gonna be great. I know I'm super nothing pumped. about him. It's awesome. He's great. So we re-engage with the story. Wax able to get he and Marcy away from Miles, and they catch up to Wayne, who is slowing down. The Wix quickly dispatches the coin shot using the ceramic bullet, and then Wax takes off on his own to find Steris. And I can't help but really feel the so I started blasting meme in this moment when he goes and he's like jumping up the stairs and makes himself lighter and then heavier. And like he he's really kind of like launching him, himself around the room, pushing off the nails in the stairs to like launch himself up two floors as he goes and just chewing off heads and, you know, like point point click heads as he's going here, switching guns point, and click, destroying. Right. Yeah, he's clicking heads, you know, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but he is he is truly chewing through the vanishers here like hot pudding this is like peak superhero wild west vibes like this is exactly mm-hmm. what you would think of if superman went to the wild west and like had to try to blend in but shit was starting to go down a little bit too much <laughs> like this is how this would go <laughs> yeah that's a great call it is <laughs> It is like supernatural Punisher in moments, Judge Dredd-esque, you know, not quite that sort of like level of extermination or violence necessarily immediately. But there is I, I love the superhero comparison where it is kind of grandiose in that same way. And I think I've come to recognize as I've read more and more books that uh, from Sanderson, they're like, it is definitely fantasy but it's almost fantasy by way of superheroism a lot of the time. Like, I I think that you calling that out is actually a lot more apt than we've given it credit for in the past. Mm-hmm. I think there's something to that. There's something to that, but it also feels like this is the book where he was trying to get away from that, which you and I have had mm-hmm. conversations about on and off air about how the Mistborn caused a problem in, like, trying to write a good antagonist. <laughs> Um, and being able to like break that down and kind of wash it away and have a more complicated story by breaking away from the like end all be all of power. Yeah, right. The the Marvel problem of you face off against the same people, right? I think we talked about this with Zane in particular was like our one comparison in the past, but like facing off against someone with the exact same power set is as interesting as seeing two people thumb wrestle who have equal capability. You know what I mean? Like it, it is more interesting that than that, but that's basically what it is because there's no, there's no advantage. There's no underdog. There's no like p- strategic positioning. It's not like a game of chess where you have different pieces that are left on the board and you have to angle at each other and try to like fight for different positions and whatnot. Instead, you're coming at it from, you know, level playing fields from level, but different playing fields. Yeah. I, I, everybody okay, has a unique or are you I'm describing saying, I'm okay. describing era one and like Zane versus Ben here. Yeah. Yes, the completely different playing fields, right? Like that's what makes this so interesting as we faced off against push and pull and miles is that 
all of these things kind of create a different confluence of like everyone has abilities, but they're so different for the most part that like it's it's fun. It's it, it's lively in a way that the Marvel villain problem like Iron Man one where it's big, big suit iron man and small suit iron man fighting each other it's like that's there's no difference you know this is just for flashy flashy which is cool it's very it's i still love the movie but yeah this is very different than that that was the core point all right wax manages to make it up to steris and the bald abducted gunsmith that we'd spoken about last week noxel i think it's noxel nuoxel you know I don't blame Kramer. Kramer gets a style guide on how to say names, so I don't it's I don't think it's Kramer's fault. But I don't think that Noxel's right because of the way that vowel switching works. But because noxious is not spelled Nuxel? anywhere near this. I, I would call that yeah, Nuxel. Nuxel. Right. Or Nuoxel, even. Maybe. Anyway, point being, it's fine. I I'm not that picky. It's just especially I'm still hung up on Tiom versus Telome. Yeah. <laughs> Telome. Yeah. Right. Just anyway, getting back to it. Who Noxel, who he promptly shoves out the window with steel push to get him to safety. It's fun that he throws a gun at him and is like, okay, goodbye. And he launches him out the window <laughs> down into the canal. It's only 30, it's only a 30 foot drop. Like he'll be fine. But yeah. It's a. <laughs> It's it's just a very funny like I don't have time for this I can't hold both of you goodbye he does a lot of like he wax does a lot of like interesting pushing and pulling almost like pulsing between different points to create like a almost a rhythm as he's like bouncing between until he breaks through with this increased weight to blow a hole in the ceiling to let he and Saris go out of the room they were ambushed in. And then he collapses the entire building by using all of his weight that he stored in his metal mind to make him, I think it, I think it says like a thousand times heavier, right? He uses all of it and just sends the whole thing crumbling down, killing almost every vanisher that was left in the process. Yeah. It's, astonishing and a very very cool show of power it's something that i kind of wish we would have seen more of through sazed in the first book because it made uh weight ferricomy feel so much more tame in comparison and i know he was primarily a copper mind user so he did he had a very limited amount of like steel that he was dealing mm-hmm. with but even then it just it this is an extreme that we didn't get to see in the first book, and I'm so glad we're seeing it now, but it it, it feels almost like a, a different power in that respect. Some of that is the combined impact, though, of Alamancy and Farrakhemi, right? Like the like ability to... Compounding. Yeah, right. Like the the ability to use these powers in conjunction with each other, I I think is an important thing to not ignore at the very least. But I would say that as we also had talked about Vin being the most skilled Mistborn, there are likely more skilled people at each more more skilled Mistings at each of the individual medals potentially than Vin was at some of them. Right. So I think to that same degree having to only learn two things is easier than juggling as many as Sazed was. So I, I agree with you. Like we never got to like quite see this degree of like ferrochemical awesomeness, but it is so great to have it here. So this brings up 
now. Sorry to cut you off a little bit, but I'm no, I, I was done thinking about it, and I'm going to lose it if I don't like blurt it out. Is the comment from Miles talking about divinity, talking about like us, and he's very pointedly talking to Wax, and I had always taken it to talking about someone with someone twin born at the very least, or specifically somebody like Alimantic or somebody ferrochemical in general. But he's talking to Wax so specifically like this, and they're the two people that we know of that are twin-born and use the same metals for both of them. Yeah? Twin-born compounders, yes. So, hmm. There is, there is something, something different about that, and... I still don't have a firm grasp on the rules of compounding. I know it's been described and I just need to go back and reread it, but it feels a little bit less solid still. Yeah. I I mean, to give you like a rough approximation, the extra power of compounding comes from the ability to burn a metal as alimancy that you have ferrochemical power stored in. So recall in the first series that Vin couldn't burn Sazed's metal mines and get anything outside of the base alimantic ability, right? From I don't think she could even get that. The metal itself. I think she could burn it as bronze. No, she was blocked. She she had the feeling that she should have been able to burn it, but she couldn't. Hmm. You may be correct. I don't want to double check right now. We'll we'll leave it to what you said. I'll agree with that. But at the very least, unusable to an Alamancer. And so this actually allows someone to use that combination, the the sort of harmonious powers of preservation in the moment between Ferrochemy and Alamancy and combine them into a burst of version of the power. Okay. That's um, fair. That said, when burning that metal, so far as we're aware at this point, what you activate is not just the like push and pull capability or like the push capability of iron or the the pull whichever way you want to yeah iron push steel pull right steel push uh, iron steel pull. push iron pull iron stores weight oh yeah iron misting is known as a literature so they're not compounders he is not a compounder there we go I didn't okay. think so but I was so close to believing okay. Regardless, though, to talk about compounding, since we're already kind of on this topic, when you burn the metal that you're storing, which is what Miles does a number of times inside of the story, it doesn't burn like an alimantic metal exclusively. It burns as a empowered version of the ferrochemical ability. So burning the metal mind in your stomach gives you that increased healing ability. So that's what gives it because you're also consuming the base metal. You don't. So like miles likely to our understanding would not be staring at a bunch of versions of himself at the same time as he's healing himself with ferrochemical gold and compounding gold. Okay, cool. Mm. This is a side cool. note that I need to add the ferrochemical glossary to the bottom of this so that we can make sure that that stays straight. It's all good. Okay. Yeah. So, so he's not he he's not compounding though. Correct. Yeah, he is not a he's not a compounder so far as we understand it. Okay. Because he's got that steel and iron. That theory. Entire point. 
We love you dearly. <laughs> um, so finally, we arrive at our final confrontation between Wax and Miles, these two lawkeepers. And of course, it's a familiar situation to the one that we found ourselves in right away in the prologue of this novel. Tarson holds Marisy gun to the back of her head. Miles stands in front, blocking the path of a bullet and really an impenetrable object kind of standing in the way here. And as Miles counts the three... Wax, on the final count, calls for a bend alloy bubble from Wayne, who obliges, and Wax takes a second, fires a bullet from within the bubble at Tarson that exits the bubble, so goes from the blue to red shift, and then as he's watching it, kind of on progress, and he does some like physical math while he's inside of the bubble to think about the angle that he needs to hit this at, he then has a bullet that he aims turns on his steel to push pulls the trigger of the gun calls for the time bubble to be dropped and launches it in so the bullet ricochets into tarson's head freeing marisy from the grasp of this this villain as he has this kind of retake on the prologue so this kind of first of all very very cool especially the build-up that we've had I figured something like this would happen after we've been, t- we've been talking so much about how unpredictable it is to shoot out of a bubble. Mm-hmm. But I think Wax is in the very particular case where that shouldn't actually matter to him as long as he has the time to line up and like push the bullet because it's going to stay at that barrier for him. So if he's pushing on it, when it gets dropped, it'll have some forward momentum, but we can make the argument that if he's pushing on it for a while, it's a buildup of momentum from his perspective that can overcome any of the momentum it already had mm-hmm. as, right. a, as a shot, as a fired shot. M1 so versus M2. Be- M2 moves faster than M1, uses it as a platform to bounce. Yeah, Bullet one, bullet two. Yeah. But he's in a u- unique position in that he's able to manipulate it at the barrier point. Whereas almost anybody else wouldn't be able to completely unreliable for anyone else. Yeah. The only difference you might see from the other side is if you had a lurcher on the inside of a speed bubble like this pulling on a metal from the outset so they could direct something downward. But then that'd be weird because you would wait for it to like get through the bubble. It's an interesting interaction to think about. That would work less predictably. Yeah. And therefore like not as effectively. Yeah. That's a fair point. So, such a cool moment. Gets, frees the girl, frees the same, not the same woman, rather, but a similar sort of situation is escaped and evaded. And it's kind of like a a moment of redemption from the PTSD. And it does ruin Wayne's hat. (laughs) To your point. (laughs) As he brings up, of course, a little bit later. Why'd you have to shoot him in the head? Why'd you have to shoot him in the head? It's such a good bit. You know, it's it's funny because I, I do, man, I, I there there's a part of me in these moments that's like, I think Brandon made the right call, but I still ask the question of like, would this be better without that moment of levity in that immediate moment? Like, would it have like a little bit more of a gut punchy sort of like redemption or is it better to have the hat joke from Wayne? But the hat joke is so in character. Yeah, like I. Yeah, I, I think so. I just like I, I do at the very least like sit here and contemplate like is A or B better? And 
I don't have a firm answer. I think instinct is I enjoy hat joke. Hat joke's good. Hat, That's joke, cool. Hat joke. Hat, hat joke. Hat joke. Hat joke. There's also, there's an important conversation that I, I don't think we've ever had on the show, but it was something that popped up inside the Discord the other day. There's a difference between, like, excellent and fun, right? Like, there's something, like, some things can be, like, excellent forms inside of their media and, like, really exemplar of, like, everything you want to do. And then there's writing or like movies or storytelling that's just a fucking good time. And like at the very least, like even if you don't appreciate anything else here, this story is a great time. Oh, absolutely. It's a ton of fun. Yeah. But yeah. I also think it's excellent. Yeah, I do too. I'm just saying like even if you don't think they're, it's excellent, I think you should think it's a good time. They are two separate things. But mm-hmm. this one's both. Right. It's kind of like a it's an A or B, but both switches can go red or green yeah that was a silly metaphor we're fine i didn't make like a silly sonic the hedgehog comment so we're good the fight turns into a bit of a bloody brawl between our antagonists as they get it on here wax blows out the man's tongue which eventually returns and heals but it's kind of a funny moment considering how much of a talker miles has been up until this point the slugfest continues across the room obviously miles can't be bested in most one-on-one combat due to his nigh invulnerability and so we uh, we kind of turn to a solution at the end here that we'll talk about in a moment. But I love the reflection that Wax has in the middle of the bout here as Miles is espousing about his morals. And he, he thinks that in the past, Miles would have been a good guy in that world of old. And he would have been fighting what he thought was a big form of oppression and is kind of the hero in his own head. And to me... To bring in the only reference that I actively wrote into my prompt, he's very Rorschach-esque in this moment, in the way that like he believes he's doing the right thing despite potentially causing way more harm. There's there's sort of a duality here of of character in a similar way to what Rorschach experiences in Watchmen that I I really really enjoy from from this sort of lens of conversation and from also wax realizing that like having that inclination and i i think what makes this argument fun for me is that it allows for total speculation because this isn't a character that could have existed in the previous book with the exception of the lord ruler through hemallergy Mm -hmm. like this is by design a character that couldn't have existed so it's total yeah. speculation from him and from us, which makes for a very, very good like argument to to be made. And it makes sense because he was a good guy before. He was a lawkeeper before, you know, like he was on the side of sort of the the righteous law, if you want to put it that way. Even before the this. righteous law people that we know from the first era have some moral ambiguities that they have to wrestle with in order to do what's right. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. that's the like that's the whole problem with Elland. That's the it whole... wasn't a bloodless revolution. Yeah, 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 exactly. Which makes such a complex for such an interestingly complex character to be on the opposite side of. Again, comparing Mistborn novel one to this book, we went from a heist novel to like the detective novel of trying to break down and tracking the criminals and the heisters and the you know like it's 
there's a nice duality in the stories here and it's just i think we run parallel paths especially in this moment as he recognizes that so true we do miles heads to grab mercy and run away with her when you know the damnedest thing happens there's been subtle hints for the last couple of bits of the conversation as the combat's been going on that something is kind of a little bit off about the arena as we look out on the edges it becomes clear to us that Marisi has used her ability to create this anti i don't want to call it an anti-speed bubble create her own slow speed bubble slow the internal time of the area so that she could wait for wayne to return with a legion of constables to arrest the invulnerable man just physically outpower him i mean imagine that that was cinematic for me it's a fucking cinematic moment yeah to drop the bubble and it's like light pours in and hundreds of constables are surrounding them like it's a less comic like less comedy but still evoked the feelings of the end of monty python and the holy grail where sure. the police just show yeah. up and ag- arrest everybody because they ran out of yeah. money and they couldn't do anything else to finish the movie like that's why that happened mm-hmm. but it's such a like an ingrained ending to a film for me that I that's what I thought of here. But just the it's in context and it makes sense here, but it's still a oops, all the constables are here <laughs> kind of like reveal. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the only like the the flourish that I imagine, the only thing that I can imagine adding to this moment is as like the light floods back in it's like a sunrise right so like they've been fighting through the night and the sun comes in for the first time because it's been that difference between like the sun cresting like being close to the horizon and actually cresting it and like that's your your time that you actually see to communicate the 15 minutes that have passed instead of this bubble to pass all that time it's so it's so good I, it's Did just they give an amount of time i thought it was longer than that no, I, I, it definitely can be. I want to say that there was an equation that was like one minute inside of the bubble is equal to 15 minutes outside of the bubble. So that, right. that's I why th- I, I thought it 15. was like several hours. I thought it was like almost a day that Wayne was able to go and collect every like all the constables. I thought maybe I thought that was it, tech- it totally could have been. I definitely am not remembering at the moment. PJ can't find his book, which is extra funny to me. Nice. What's funny here, too, to mention is it's also because of the way that light interacts with the bubble. We're blue shift, red shift, which is funny. So as opposed to like our average understanding of things, like this is an inversion of the other speed bubble. Right. Right. So we see that collection of images hit us kind of all at once in a sped up version of everything that would have happened as it interacted with light. And then the image of what's current arrives. So it's the inverse of the blue red shift. Yeah, and she she talks about how they cancel each other, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is interesting to me from like a side note perspective because I believe Marcy's bubble is. This might be where I'm getting the 15 number from. I think it's 15 feet wide versus Wayne's is five feet ish. So there's more range on one versus the other. So I'm like, that's interesting because she, she said it could fill a small room. Yeah, I want. Um, for some reason, my brain so is gravitating feet towards makes 15. Sense. Yeah, I think it's in 20. It's got to be in 20. It's got to be. Because I just read most of 19 through the end. To your point, though, of gathering everyone up, I think it's got to be hours. Yeah, 
uh, yeah I, I i i think just from the the concept of even like trying to get someone on board it's got to be hours i remember like i remember thinking about it after it was like after reading it and felt like a day mm-hmm. like i remember thinking about what wayne was gonna do for a day while dealing with this but i can't find it okay but i would imagine it's several hours to your point while you continue to review the pages i'm just going to count down here on my own don't worry about the clap i'm not going to find it but i i think it was maybe it was in conjunction with the conversation about how if if uh was found out and Mm -hmm. if if miles had noticed they would have been like hours away from any help it was something it was something like that i i think that's right i think that there's some like subcontext that is given beforehand to say that they're so far away from people even if they heard the shots it would take so long for them to show up and i think that is long before the end of this chapter so that makes sense mm-hmm. cool all right well with a vague understanding of the idea of the cadmium bubble and sort of the time manipulation there we can say it was a couple of hours but i love the description of the redshift blue shift i love this moment of apprehension like this moment of which he is apprehended is is so great it's awesome mm-hmm. it's it so well thought out brilliant use absolutely and i mean this is the the practical use after the adamant description of it being a useless power so Mm -hmm. yeah totally off the dome we came up with a bunch of like useful (laughs) uses we came up with a couple yeah 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 and and that's why i was like i was kind of there was a back part of my brain that was a little bit concerned that you'd come up with the solution here on in that conversation but obviously we didn't quite get there so all right with that we go into our final regular chapter we've got an epilogue to follow this but it's a pretty quick one our denouement here is pretty powerful uh, and pretty wonderful we started off with wax and marisy calling it quits which is interesting not that they were together or anything like that before but wax firmly drawing that line in the sand and he cites that it's not only age within his own head but there are other reasons too he kind of internally monologues about the scars that he carries and the damage that he has and how it's not right to inflict upon a young person and from marisy's perspective it's sort of a somber moment that marisy's plays is like misunderstanding and there's some like misanthropy there that's interesting but there is some like deep personal hurt i think that's all based on youth yeah there's that i really like the way you've described it so far i think one thing to dig into a little bit more which i i think the text describes it even better than the way that you paraphrased it and that's the the comment about wax saying if he was only 10 years younger and it not being to do with age but baggage collected over that time and I, I think that's a perfect culmination of what he's feeling here. It, it makes total sense to me that it, it's yeah. not about how much older he is, but it, the amount of experience that he's gone through and the trauma that he carries as a result. Yeah, they they have very different lives. You know, they you know, they're they can't run together forever. And I, it's not so that they ever were like together by any means, but he doesn't want he wants to ensure that she's not let on as much as mm-hmm. possible. That's what this is. And it's, you know, it's it's sad. It's unfortunate, but it's real and important. So. Exactly. 
Breton, the constable general, though, inside of this moment, also decides to deputize our little waxy boy and enables him <laughs> to basically be a different type of lawman entirely, one re- responsible and capable of actions that the police might take, but, like, doesn't need to, like, run a beat or anything like that. Like, he doesn't need to, like, rule over an octant, but he can pretty much act with impunity inside of Allendale, which is crazy he's like a sanctified batman it's a pretty sweet break for wax kind of going forward wayne makes another trade of course that we kind of see in the background we get the thing that we talked about last week with wayne's trades of like you know they aren't exactly fair or even clear as to how he thinks of them as even but it's it's fun still of course mm-hmm. this ain't breton <laughs> oh okay there really? are several comments about like him acting weird, okay, and not acting like in in conjunction with what you would expect. This is this is a chondra. I am almost certain of it. Okay, so that is me putting a flag in the sand at this one. This Firmly. ain't Brett. holy shit. Sorry, sorry, folks at home. You're not listening to that much dead space, but at the same time, I have to mark this as a prediction all of a sudden because PJ decided to make it one. Yep. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I mean, fair enough. I, I think that there's some notes there that like he's thinking differently because all of a sudden he's in charge and like he didn't have to be before, but sure. But he was. He was in charge of Petraeus. Petraeus was in charge of everything before. He's the inheritor to Petraeus, but. It's okay. There, I I, I'm not going to take the time to like look through it, but there are some very like suspicious comments. I I'll give you the prediction for sure. I I'm all for you eventually drinking for this. So like, okay, we're good. Cool. And there's also a nice, sweet, somber moment here that kind of punctuates the end of this chapter between Wax and Steris as they settle their affairs in post of this traumatic experience between the two and the kind of abduction and rescuing and kind of everything that's going there. Steris begins to kind of drop her shield that she's held up for a very long time and this guard that she's held and reveal who she really is here as they progress and decide to continue with an actual engagement. You know, it still feels pretty rigid. And like there, there are some concessions made within the contract as far as timeline goes. Like there's nothing really, but it all softens. Like it, it's it's like a you took the butter out of the fridge and like you got some understanding and you put it out into the open and like it's becoming spreadable. You just saved her from being a compu- concubine. Like <sighs> of course there's going to be some like softened emotions there. It's not. I don't know. I, I don't think I can make a comment on like her truly changing yet because there's this is rescued from trauma yeah agreed and i was trying to clarify i don't think that she's like fully changed or anything but there's there's sort of a dismantling of some guardrails that were there before there they didn't really get each other on it like almost any level in their first interaction and so they have like no mutual experience between conversations between the two and now through a demonstration of sorts there's a lot more understanding yeah. that's kind of what i'm what i'm intending by by my thoughts here if that makes sense like it's not like they're in love like it's definitely still a contractual agreement we aren't staring at insta love um or anything like that but it is at the very least a little bit more accepting and a little bit more familiar but not nearly the sort of instant chemistry that wax and marisy had 
Yeah, I, I can agree with that. And I, I do apologize if concubine is the wrong term for what she was being held as. I don't know the proper term for like baby factory. Which is sort of, yeah, the way that the contract laid it out in a very mm-hmm. kind of, yeah, I understand. Not the contract, yeah. what she was like kidnapped. Oh, 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 yeah, we don't know. We don't even know what she was kidnapped for. So like on top of that. Yeah, assumption there. Well, I mean, the, I the assumption of what her. she was kidnapped for. Like, got it. Got it. Okay. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. I'm not saying that she was being... becoming Wax's okay. concubine. I was okay. saying that she, she, I... Wax rescued her from being a concubine. Got it. I thought you were implying her being Wax's concubine. So this is a great Sorry. clarification because I was like, I can understand that I saw the, that I saw the look on your I think face. It's a little, yeah, okay, all right. As long as, yeah, yeah. She was obviously saved from something. We don't know what. You assume Baby Factory. We Wax kind of have some baby lines. Factory. Fair point. Wax assumes Baby Factory. You assume Baby Factory. We know that bloodlines are important inside of it, so, meh. Hmm. Makes sense. Yeah. But it sets up more to come with Steris and Wax at the very least. Mm-hmm. So... Moving on from that, we go into our epilogue here to kind of end this. And I've got a couple of things to say, but this epilogue, I think, is brilliantly paced in the way that it hops between perspectives and manages some of these different moments that are very high intensity. Again, we've said it before. I'll definitely repeat it. This feels like a film more than any of the other books did. And this feels like the way that you would see these scenes cut back and forth and hopping between the perspectives entirely. But talking about it, I want to try to not approach it like a film and try to talk about the story beats completely as they are from perspectives. So we're going to start with Marisy and then we'll move to Wax. <laughs> so that said, Marisy is attending Miles' execution and the man is this sort of this is sort of like a very intense and dark scene here that we see between them he's not between them necessarily but just in terms of the context of the novel in general it's an execution it is it is kind of a dark moment but it's it's something that i mean we've seen the sky execution all the way in the beginning of era one but this is justice on the other side of it and it still feels wrong even though it's the right people doing it it still feels dark and bleak and wrong he he's of course shot repeatedly until he dies some residual metal that he's burning inside of his stomach but he shouts something before his sort of brutal triple tap execution he says you are fools one day the men of gold and red bearers of the final metal will come to you and you will be ruled by them and after being shot a couple more times he says worship worship trell and wait what thoughts we have about his comments on Trell here at the end and thoughts about the final medal. The men of gold and red bearers of the final medal is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything that we know of currently that Trell points to as far as gold goes? No stars. No, I see no, that. I, that's it. But I can anyway, though. What's up? Yeah. More I silvery than gold. Yeah. Y- yeah. Um, so like, Trell is a weird one to pull, but we know he worships Trell. It feels like there's something so big here that I do not have any context for. But it makes sense that anybody with this particular twinborn capability is such like at, at such an advantage for any sort of conquering. Like it, it's yeah. setting up something, some some bullshit. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. 
it it definitely is it's it's a setup for sure i i would say that you know shouting specifically of red and gold no idea on red can't make any calls there but men of gold feels like he's almost like particularly saying himself as though like there's some like internal reflectiveness there if i think about the use of gold right like gold either way is either healing yourself from wounds that you receive or it is seeing yourself in some kind of way so it is very autonomous in design like it is very much your own side of things so part of me sees the gold as like a self-obsession thing maybe but maybe it's connected and there is something between the gold and red immediately i'm just seeing gold in particular as like this thing that's that almost maybe miles might be associating with something that he doesn't fully understand hard to tell this feels prophetic Mm -hmm. more than more than actual knowledge sure It, it feels like an external prophecy being expelled yeah, that makes sense. I I get that for sure. Oh, it's tough. We'll see. We'll see where it goes. Next up for Marisy, we go into Marisy feeling very compelled to chase down a figure after the execution when robed in these black and gray robes. And it's almost like it was encouraging her more than her usual curiosity might have sought to chase after something. She finds herself in an alley with old iron eyes herself himself, Marsh, as we've talked about before. And he has a warning of sorts or maybe information. Warning might be a little bit too strict here, but his information to packs into wax and thinks that the safest way to do it, of course, is through her. It's a small book with more information for the both of them in their coming adventures. Any thoughts on Iron Eyes intervention almost here, like giving this information as it seems kind of outside of Harmony's immediate will? It. <sighs> It does. It feels outside of Harmony's will, but Harmony's will is so laissez-faire to begin with. What I find very interesting about this is this feels supernatural, um, mm. not not in the allomantic and hemologic sense that we know him to possess, but it, it feels omniscient. It feels like he has information that he shouldn't for some reason, almost as though he's been imbued with sort of the i don't know there there's some extra planar powers that he's dealing with that's allowing him to compel mercy that's allowing him to know the intricacies of their personal lives without directly intervening with them like there there's it's tricky like there's something there's something different about him but i don't know what it is <laughs> there it's i mean it's cool to see A, cool to see Marsh back in the story at this point. It's kind of a nice entry point to like actually see another character, another old character return. And of course, it's the other guy who could be immortal as you predicted, which is great. I will definitely be taking a drink at the end of this episode here. But it is also it begs a lot of questions about a lot of things. And I think that's also why we talked a little bit about this offline, but part of me believes that Brandon wrote the main threads of this story for the most part with the intent of this being a single novel. And then he Mm -hmm. saw all of these sort of dangling artifacts that he immediately thought of extensions to like keep it going and was like, well, I have to. I feel like I gotta. I feel like I gotta explore all these things to their fullest extent. So, And I think there's a lot of language and a lot of just like little things in this book 
that come through almost not jokingly, but more jovial and more Easter eggy than what I think we would have seen if he had intended for this to be a trilogy to begin with, or ex- sure. intended for it to be like the basis of another a saga. Series. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that doesn't take away from the story itself, but I, I think there are just like little things here and there, artifacts, as you mentioned, of that first intention. And I don't, I, I can't imagine the epilogue existed in that first draft. Yeah, I don't think so either. I, I believe because of the way that chapter 20 wraps up, it wraps up with almost a perfect denouement. I can imagine maybe a different scene that you'd have like Wax and Wayne staring off into the sunset for sure to kind of end it all. But other than that, yeah. I I totally agree. Yeah. Okay. That's Maris's side of the story. We now move to Wax's side of this epilogue. So Wax takes a train to Dryport seeking someone unknown for but a moment to us when it's revealed that his uncle Ed Warren is still alive and walks into the room. There's a lot here inside of this section, but what does it make you think about the set, the kidnapped woman, his sister, and the future of the series having this reveal that Ed Warren is Mr. Suit, and we get all these other, like literally in the span of two pages, the entire book is kind of flipped upside down in a moment. What What do you think? I mean, I had assumed that there was something more to the death of his uncle. Mm-hmm. I hadn't quite considered that it was insurance fraud and faking your own fair point (laughs) it's simultaneously genius and hilarious that this is Hmm. the entire motivation for like this nefarious crew Mm -hmm. um i still don't quite understand the tension between the two characters sure um it feels like it's something that had been building for a long time like they they were in bad blood to begin with and it didn't get that in wax's reflections on his family previously sure um so that that threw me for a little bit of a loop and i'm not sure what to make of it yet but i'm excited to see where it goes going forward i i think like just my i don't want to call it a counterpoint but my a little bit of a rebuttal to that is that the conversation that happens here between ed warren and of course our boy wax i don't know if it's bad blood in the family history so much as it is the situation that he was left with like the damage that he caused i think is enough to build resentment because wax it's not even though it feels like we've only been in this story for a couple of weeks realistically we're closer to a year in total time elapsed somewhere between nine months to a year given the distance between prologue to chapter one to chapter two so i i feel like that's resentment from the situation that he was left in because he had to leave the roughs which was also good for him because the death of lessie wasn't sitting well in his head so like there there are a couple of reasons that it's okay but it's kind of like you dealt me a shit hand man like and i can feel that emotion yeah yeah i can get that yeah but yeah other than that it feels like there's there's some there's some undiscovered stuff there as well i would say like we're not we're not fully there on their relationship for sure it wasn't something he ruminated on because he wasn't really there so it didn't make sense to Mm -hmm. so all right you didn't mention the set or the kidnapped woman or his sister so oh his sister's still alive too yep and is being held i mean I didn't mention it because you didn't mention it, man. I mentioned it in the fucking question. 
Oh, did you? Okay. Yeah. You mentioned all of them. <laughs> all of them. You're I right. said it all. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah. It, it leaves. I still believe and am, am in agreement with the initial assessment from Marisy that this is a nefarious farm for Alamancers. That is kind of mm-hmm. at odds with the explanation that we get from the suit here. But in the words of Kelsier, there's always another secret. Invoking the Lord of the Mists, huh? All right. Fine. I'll I'll take that. All right. So our final moment to talk about in this book is a conversation that happens between our eponymous pair, as the title as the title of the series is so aptly named, after Wax and Wayne. And it's a promise that we get from Wax to end the story. Wax would see this to the end. Ruff's honor. When one of your own went bad, it was your job to see the mess cleaned up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's there's some fun conversation that you're you're skipping over here. Oh, there's a lot um, of fun conversation. I'm just giving like we're at the end, right? Like this you is, can definitely this talk about end. all it's the conversation. Great, yeah. I love the Ruff's honor invocation. Mm-hmm. I love the idea that the lawman like code extends to family as well. Mm-hmm. It's not just like one of the lawmen it's one of your own and that includes like my family's fucking up let me clean this up like i i love that that code is evoked but there's i want to talk about the fun conversation i mean do it the goofball sort of like sly talking about like how'd you get this note how'd you get this little book table sweep like or or the like I I owe you five notes and he's like you owe me 15 and it's because I bet you would help me on this and you're like fuck I forgot about that from the very beginning you know there's there's some good shit here there's some good shit here could I get a a dictionary definition of the word eponymous Uh, so it's self-titled I don't think I actually need to google that but I will just double check no uh, uh, yeah giving your name to something so named after someone or something the example is literally the eponymous hero of the novel which is hilarious or roseanne's eponymous hit tv series so titular in another in another word yes like the story titled after a character right okay i don't think it fits here it does it totally does the series is wax and wayne it's not not i mean it's also referred to as era two that says a mistborn novel in the front but the whole thing is referred to as the wax and wayne novels before he called it officially era two it's fine leave me alone all right fine (laughs) i don't know it as a wax and wayne novel we've referred to it as my desk yeah 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 (laughs) well it's also because i didn't want to spoil the names of the characters like immediately like i didn't want to spoil shit right so like i referred to it more as era two than i did the wax and wayne books because they're kind of interchange understandable so it's a good it's a a good place to leave off with them though yeah for sure it's a good it's a good joke like joke crescendo into the ending with like a final beat almost as i've said before like staring off into the sunset as we cascade away with the idea that like we are going to be returning for a sequel like this is Mm -hmm. wax and wayne will return in 2023 or whatever it is you know (laughs) very marvel-esque and that's okay i i dig it yeah nothing wrong with that 
Cool. Anything else that you want to say about the book? I'm fucking right about Marsh. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, okay. PJ's <laughs> predictions to, to get into that. Yes. PJ's prediction. Is anyone still alive? I kind of turned this into like a reverse Deadpool that I'm going to be keeping for the rest of the series for you. Mm-hmm. You said Marsh would still be alive. He's got all the spikes, presumably can access the combinations that the Lord Ruler had to stay alive for thousands of years. If anyone, it's him. Cheers. Yep. The rest of the shot went down the hatch. So, yeah. That was that was the only prediction, really, that we kind of had inside of this book that wasn't immediately paid off. I did expect that and kind of anticipate it because of the pacing and sort of the way it's written. Like, this was never going to be a prediction book. I don't direct like interaction with. Okay, here's my thing. I take your comment on obviously says it is alive as being so obliquely obvious that I cannot count it inside of your prediction. It is so a hundred percent correct without any sort of assumption. Like there's no assumption there. There's no No, there's no risk. So, yeah, no. The other two parts. I still think Kelsier's kicking somewhere. Yeah. Um, I don't, the, the, the comment of I don't think anyone else could still be alive has a caveat depending on how Condra work with their blessings. Does the same Mist Wraith come back as the same Condra if respiked? In which case, if that's possible, I think some will come back. And some that didn't despike themselves would still be around but most of those were like slaughtered very very easily yeah right to that point i'm going to add this in as a new prediction of course and kind of keep this as like a running thing for the story as we progress so for the time Mm -hmm. being and i will date your calls and different things as we move forward so that we kind of have an idea of when you made those decisions and thoughts. I'll contradict so. myself. I'll fucking do it. I know. You do it all the fucking time, man. <laughs> all I right. Do. It's true. It's I mean, it's it's good. We we did, PJ, we finished another book in a in an hey. astoundingly short period of time, comparatively. Um mm-hmm. and so we absolutely briskly ran through this one. So with that. We start our next book next week, and we are reading Shadows of Self. This one is going to be covered in four episodes as they're broken up. Again, I'm hoping that we have the calendar repaired before this episode comes out. When I was talking with Tim, it sounded like that was going to be a thing, so it should be good to go. Worst case, again, it will be on our Twitter. You can find it there. Again, to repeat it here, prologue through chapter six. I double-checked everything this time before putting any of this down. I did a double-check before this episode. It's exactly where I wanted to go. No more change-ups, no more special special adjustments. So, schedule set in stone. Perfect. So, that's where we'll leave you for this week. Thank you, as ever, to our producers, Tim and Andrew, for helping us keep our show going. You can check out the links in our show notes where you can find our schedule, our Patreon, or maybe our schedule, as Crossland just mentioned. Schedule, Patreon, previous episodes, websites, all of our social media accounts, all in one very nice, convenient location. Yes, and in case you didn't know of those various locations, Words Whiskey Pod on Twitter, Instagram, Reddit, Words and Whiskey Show, gmail.com, patreon.com forward slash words and whiskey, t shirts on T Public, although that will be probably changing pretty soon. So get them there while you can. Otherwise, we'll have a new kind of link up instead of our links, which you can find at Words with 
wordsandwhiskey.show forward slash links. You can find everything in one convenient place like PJ had mentioned before. That will include links to Atomic Pylon and all of the other shows that we're doing and producing, including Short Pours. We recently read The 11th Medal as well as had an interview come out with both PB Doodles and Sean from the Howler Project, Howler Initiative. So we're going to be talking about that. You'll have both of those short pours for your access. A two for one month. Like, come on. Mm-hmm. It'll be fun. So, yeah, for sure. I still haven't listened to that interview that you had because I was not present. So. Fun fact. We're retaking it tomorrow. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you right. knew this. Right. <laughs> I, did. I, I, for, I knew this and then I forgot about yes. this. It's all good. Fucking Riverside. That's all I have to say. It was supposed to come out literally three weeks ago. So cool. With that, we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.